Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Michael Stamm, a historian at Michigan State University, and we'll be discussing his 2018 book called Dead Tree Media, Manufacturing the Newspaper in 20th Century North America. Dead Tree Media starts out with a really simple but weirdly thought-provoking premise that a newspaper used to be almost exclusively a physical object made out of paper. And so this meant the the production of the newspaper required industrial production, mills, a distribution system to get physical copies to individual consumers, and of course, wood. It meant a lot of wood. Um, It meant chopping down trees, acquiring forests, and managing international supply chains. And so this premise opens up an entire world that may seem distant from us today as we consume almost all of our news on screens. Uh, and so, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Dexter. Yeah, I, I, I'm thrilled that we're getting a chance to um, talk about this book. It was one of the most creative and compelling media histories um, that I've ever read. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And so, firstly, can you just share with listeners what drove you to research this topic in the first place? Sure. Yeah. I, I've, I've been a media historian uh for most for my entire career as a graduate student and a professor so this is about about 20 years now and i had started out i've always com- tried to combine political economy and cultural history so i've looked at um essentially how the what the evolving rules of the game were for communications media and then tried to figure out what that meant for creating the informational environments that people live in and i had done a, a lot of my early work on on radio history and found myself kind of working back to the the moment when radio was was developing as a new medium, and I got kind of fascinated by the the fact that there were all these newspapers that were getting involved in early radio, and that 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 what people had been calling you know this kind of media revolution looked a lot less like that than it did a kind of co optation of a new form of communications media by the old com- dominant communications media. Um, so I. I ended up writing my first book about that, about the newspaper ownership of radio uh, from about 1920 to about 1950. And I, I got really interested as I was finishing up that book in in two things. And one of them was how this this thing, the newspaper that that everybody was predicting was just going to wither away because of radio and then later because of television, not only didn't wither away, but but got even more powerful and profitable and more important. Uh, you know, they Newspapers were the most, they generated more advertising revenue than any other medium into the mid-1990s. Even when the news cycle went 24 hours in the 1980s, newspapers were still the most important drivers of that that news cycle. And so I kind of wanted to know, you know, what was it that kept them around for this long when everybody was just predicting their demise? And then the other thing that, that got me into this specific project was as I was researching how publishers 
did their business, I kept coming across in in publishers' archives and in the trade journals in the U.S. all of these references to these Canadian newsprint suppliers that seem to be just giving these Americans fits. And, and you know, to the point that they, I, I used to like jokingly think of them as like they were like the Libyans that Christopher Lloyd would talk about in Back to the Future, that they just became <laughs> like these like boogeymen. And I, I like, what what on earth? Like why are like what does Canadian newsprint have to do with printing an American newspaper? Um, and that was just sort of where I started. And I started digging around and, and before – too long, I, I sort of realized that they'd had just about everything to do with it. That, you know, by the middle of the 20th century, about 80% of the newsprint that was used in the United States had had started as a tree in Canada. And so just kind of following that thread and trying to figure out and explain how that happened was basically what generated the book. Yeah, the, the book is doing a lot. I mean, it starts off with this like broader history of the rise of the industrial newspaper, the significance of um, you know wood supplies, um, and then it kind of zooms in on a biography of the Robert McCormick-led Chicago Tribune, and then kind of takes a step back and looks at the broader history of the newspaper in the second half of the 20th century. Um, and so given how richly just wide ranging the book is, um, I think it would be really useful um, to maybe just start off with what you see as the major inter- intervention that it's making. Um, I, I guess there's a couple of them. Um, you know, one of them is, is this idea that, that information is material and it remains that way. Uh, you know, back when it was, back when newspapers were the dominant form of media. That's everything. It was all material. You had, you, you gave someone money in exchange for a, a collated sheet of paper that had news and advertisements on it. Um, and it, I, that history is something that I, people seem to be under the impression that we've kind of moved into this era of kind of dematerialized media. Um, which I don't think is true at all. It's just that the, the factories have moved and the devices that people are using to access media have changed, but it's still very much the same. And I think you can draw a straight line from, um, you know, the lithium and rare earth metals that are in your iPhone that's manufactured in China, despite being designed in California, as Apple announces to you on the back of the device. I think you can draw a straight line back to these kind of international resource-driven supply chains that were part of the history of the daily newspaper that, you know, that 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 it just it was Canadian trees rather than Chilean lithium, um, and it was U.S. newspapers as opposed to this digital device. But um, but the history of information is a, is a material history, and it it really it fits in with and is an important part of these emerging histories of industrial capitalism. Um, so I think it I think that's one of the big interventions there is that we have to consider the history of media as part of a history of industrial capitalism. Um, I think the the I also one of the one of the things that I also hope that the book does is kind of remind people that we we te- there's a tendency I think sometimes to use journalism and newspapers interchangeably and and that's not the case. Um, journalism is is a, a hugely important part of what's in a newspaper. I mean, for historians, you know, that's often how we find out about the past. This is you go to the newspaper to find evidence of what happened. And, you know, in the age where you can get a lot of these things through targeted keyword searches digitally, what's delivered to you are the, the these little gems of the articles themselves. Everything's without context. You just get the, the article from the 1948 edition of the New York Times. But if you, if you kind of step back and look at the newspaper as a whole thing, you can see that there were these, you know, these 
giant packages of news, even on weekdays. I mean, Sunday newspapers are a whole other thing. I mean, these things weighed you know a pound and a half. But a, but a daily newspaper is this massive and visually rich document that has journalism in it. It has you know all sorts of other co- advice columns, classified ads. Um, there's been a brilliant book recently by Julia Guarneri about this, like all this diverse content. Um, and all of this, it's this big package of paper that you get every day. Um, and it's, you know, as a, as a material history, it's it, as a material object, it's this incredibly, I mean, as a material object and as a part of industrial capitalism, it's this huge achievement. I mean, these publishers in big cities would print a million copies of a manufactured item on Monday morning, have it all sold by late morning on Monday, and then do the whole thing again on Tuesday. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of reorient people back to the idea that that newspapers were these big objects made out of paper um, that people would get on a daily basis that would have, you know, in addition to the journalism, all sorts of other things um, that would tell them, that would let them know about what was going on in the world around them. So um, getting them to think about the, the, the old paper package of the delivery um, – I guess also I, I, the, I there were two other things I guess that I was that that I really wanted to do in the book and, and one of these was to show that that this was another instant the the way that this that U.S. newspapers were able to operate had to do with government subsidies. We we often think of newspapers as I think in in terms of in First Amendment terms and we think of of editors and journalists who are who are you know speaking truth to power and and many of them and and there are in many important instances of people doing that. Um, but as business enterprises, newspapers have been and remain to be heavily subsidized. I mean, the, the Richard John's work on the post office was sort of pioneering and showing how the post office enabled the circulation of information. Um, and what I found was that tariff policy did this essentially by allowing Canadian newsprint to come to the United States with no duties on it. it the U.S. government gave a, a multi-year, multi-billion-dollar subsidy. To newspapers, and what they did with this newsprint was they printed journalism, but they also printed all of the advertising that generated the overwhelming majority of the revenues that kept the businesses going. Um, and then the last thing was I, I really hope that the book shows American readers how intertwined U.S. and Canadian history are. Um, that that's not a that's not a big insight for pe- for Canadians, but <laughs> for Americans, it it does remain that. I mean, I you know, there's been there's been an increasing call in the among Americanists in the last couple decades to to internationalize American history, to globalize American history, and there's been a lot of amazing work that's that's been done there. Um, but it's it has struck me that there's been this strange absence of the country that is immediately to the north of the United States um, and that has, which with which the United States has had one of the, the most robust trade relationships in the world. And, and it, for some reason, it, it just really hasn't shown up in the historiography uh, as much as it should. And so part of, part of the book's project was to make a case to American readers that, that they needed to think more broadly and deeply about, Canadian history and about North American history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, just to that last point, you know, as a, a Canadian who's, who has spent a lot of time in the United States, um, it's always been, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, both like puzzling and entertaining just to see how um, little people actually know about Canada. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that you're doing that work. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that, 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 that's a really wonderful sort of um, overview of, uh, of the book and um, maybe a, a first topic to discuss or that would be um, interesting to discuss would be yeah. how American publishers became dependent on 
Canadian resources. Um, and, um, you know, in, in particular, um, what that dependence, um, well, what that dependence looked like, sort of like in a material way, but then also what that dependence felt like for Americans. Right. Um, so it, it, it happened uh, as a, there were, until the, the middle of the 19th century, the, the, the cotton rags were the, the major source for the manufacturing of paper. And a, a German inventor uh, in the 1870s invented a way to make uh, cheap paper uh, that could withstand the rigors of industrial printing out of wood pulp. And this was this just dramatically expanded the, the base of raw materials that would be available to make paper. And at the time, the the you needed the, the the materials that was best suited to do to to do this uh, were trees that were located in the global north. So these were things you know in in particular spruce trees. Um, and so you you find what begins to develop around the world around the globe is in these northern climates, Canada, and then um, especially across the Atlantic in Scandinavia, is the development of, of a wood pulp based uh, newspaper industry. So there had been a little bit of this happening in the United States, or more than a little bit happening in northern states, Maine, uh, Minnesota, Massachusetts, New York. Um, but before the era of, of the, the the rise of the conservation movement, so that is to say, you know, before Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot begin to make this something that the federal government makes, you know, a very important policy consideration. Um, a lot of there, there had been a lot of cutting around mills done relatively indiscriminately. And people there were these congressional hearings in the late 19th and early 20th century where there's there's people who are saying that that, you know, there's a there's a a, not, a near term horizon for the exhaustion of the kinds of forest resources that Americans are going to need to continue to, to produce news, newspapers. And so people started trying to figure out um, you know, what a solution was. Well, the the one one of the one of the things that they stumbled upon as being an obvious one was just well there's there's whole there's a whole lot of trees just north of the U.S. Canada border why can't we go get access to those, and that that took a series of of complicated policy negotiations uh, in the early 20th century the Canadians played it pretty smart and they said you know we we have the trees that you want. Um, and so we're going to have it. We're going to exercise the bargaining power that we have in this relationship, um, and and we're willing to talk about a, a trade agreement in which you can take a manufactured good across the border, but we're not just going to let you cut down the trees and take those. If you're if you're going to do that, you're going to pay duties. Or they might. There were even cases where there there were embargoes uh, on pulpwood exports to the United States. So in in the in the starting around uh, 1911, the U.S. and Canada entered into these negotiations about trade reciprocity, and um, there was a bunch. There were there were a number of goods that were up for debate, a number of agricultural commodities, not much in the way of manufactured goods, but the one that was really important in that in those negotiations was newsprint. This was something that newspaper publishers really wanted, and they spent a lot of time and energy leaning on members of Congress to make sure that this went through, and. So this the the U this this sails through this this goes it doesn't sail through but it goes through fine in the United States and it goes to Canada uh, for parliamentary approval and it hits a number it hits it it hits a snag and Wilfrid Laurier calls an election and it's a single issue election the issue is basically is Canada going to enter into this free trade agreement with the United States or not. And Laurier loses the election. This is the end of uh, Laurier's liberals lose the election. This is the end of of their long uh, rule and um, but so the, and the the reciprocity agreement is scuttled. But one thing is made 
duty-free as a result uh, of a loophole enacted in the laws, and that was newsprint. And so um, U.S. publishers then have access. If, if the, the, the way that the, the mechanics of the negotiation were pretty simple, if, if, some, if a U.S. manufacturer went to Canada and built a mill there and did everything there up to the point of, manufa- and up to the point of manufacturing the newsprint, that manufacturer could send that newsprint to the United States without paying a penny of duties. So it's basically an integrated free trade continental market for what newspapers needed to exist. And before long, the over the course of about – took about a decade uh, for the industry to really shift up north. It's a, it's a, it's a capital-intensive industry, uh, newsprint manufacturing. And so people had to go up there and build the mills. But but by by the, the post-World War I period, that had clearly happened – um, with, that Canada had become this, the the dominant source of American newspapers, and, and to your last question, there was this. There's these really, there's these kind of richly ironic belly achings in U.S. trade newspaper trade journals because they realized, having gotten exactly what they wanted, they had essentially lost control of the newsprint that they depended on, and now this thing that had been based on resources that they were getting in their own country was now something that was on the other side of an international border. And subject to the whims and policies of policymakers that they had a lot less influence over. And so there was a tremendous amount of anxiety uh, about publishers uh, in the 20s. Uh, and this, it, this would peak up at different points uh, as the 20th century went along. They, nobody, really, nobody in the US really minded as long as the prices stayed relatively low. Um, but whenever the prices would spike up, all of a sudden publishers would sort of get newly nationalistic about getting, taking back control uh, of newsprint supplies. And you see this, um, you see, you see this quite a bit after, right after World War II. Uh, there's a big push among a lot of people in the U.S. to kind of renationalize American production so that um, American newspapers, uh, you know, weren't threatened uh, by the whims of these these Canadians who controlled all the paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that stuff so interesting. Um, uh, like th- there were there were congressional hearings in 1950. Yeah, and um, um, you, you quote the general manager of the LA Daily News, um, who said, "You know, how how can we expect to have a healthy free press unless we have an adequate domestic source of raw material for this vital industry?" Yep. Um, and so you can really sense like the um, the anxiety about having to go abroad for resources. The U.S. as an empire had just gotten so used to doing these things on their terms and often without negotiations, you know, going back to the period after the Spanish-American War and and their deal, the dealings with Canada always were under the – they were they, it was always something that it had to be negotiated and that, that I think a lot of a lot of American policymakers found that very frustrating because that was not what they were used to having to do in the Western Hemisphere. They were used to just getting the raw materials that they wanted and needed on the terms – that they demanded. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point, actually. Um, when you compare it with sugar in the Caribbean, you know, the, it, most other resources yeah, in the Western yeah. Hemisphere, it, I mean, military incursion would be the the precursor to a market being set up that would supply the United States. And you know, there was I, I found that, I, and there's a little bit in the book. There were there were a handful of these American uh, congressional representatives who made these these sort of outlandish statements in, in Congress about how they thought we should just annex Canada. And if we just, if we just went ahead and did that, we wouldn't have to worry about that. And um, I mean, that promote that promoted, a, that provoked a, some 
not insignificant consternation among Canadians who who used this in the in the 1911 election campaign as a rallying cry to get people to vote for the conservatives, saying, you know, if you, if you don't do this, there, there's, a, there's a decent chance that, that that Canada might be annexed by the Americans who would simply do that because they want our natural resources. Like, look what they're doing throughout the rest of the hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking back to this paper that I wrote in high school, which was literally about sort of the possibility of Americans taking over our water supplies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, these these anxieties uh, um, continue, um, and so just moving on, um, the sort of like the center of your book is the um, the Robert McCormick led Chicago Tribune, yep. um, and, and this is really interesting for um, ideological reasons, um, uh, probably above all, um, but. Um, Maybe before we get into like some of the arguments about, um, or at least like in, in this um, middle part of your book, yeah. um, can you just give listeners a profile of who Robert McCormick was and what the Chicago Tribune was? Mm-hmm. Sure. It, it, McCormick is a sort of endlessly fascinating figure, I think. He was, uh, he was a native Midwesterner. Um, who was very proud of, of that. He he was born he was born into a family of privilege. Um, his grandfather had started the paper or bought bought a stake of the, bought a stake of the Tribune, uh, and um, he it was it was sort of the family business. He was uh, you know brought up under brought up uh, with an incredible amount of privilege, and he he took he came to take over the Tribune uh, in 1911. He had had a career as an alderman in Chicago and had been a head of the Chicago Sanitary District, and he looked like he he might be headed for a, a career in politics. Um, like as as had uh, one of his brothers, but he ended up getting turned out of office, and he had this fa- he had the family business to fall back on, and so when it came time to to take over, he he took over the paper with his cousin Joseph Patterson in 1911, and this was right about the time that the free trade agreement was going. But McCormick was a, was a really was a very conservative man. Um, he he disliked and detested and resented. Uh, East Coast elites. He had this lifelong antipathy towards Franklin Roosevelt that that seems to date back to to some overlap that they had in prep school. Although, I, as far as I know, no one has turned up a smoking gun for what really started this all. But he had this incredible hatred for Franklin Roosevelt. Um, but he hated he hated East Coast elites. He he really didn't like much about Britain. Um, he was a he was an America first guy uh, back when that was you know. When that was a thing within the you know in the Lindbergh era as well, and and he ran the paper he ran the paper that way. It was um it was a paper that I, I think is a really it's a really fascinating newspaper because as, as a newspaper it really doesn't fit well at all with the traditional histories of the of news of the newspaper business and of journalism that are kind of the mainstream ways that we understand newspapers. That is that there was there was a partisan period in the the eighteenth century and in the 19th century this gives way to the penny press and you begin to see the the pre- the mass press detach itself from party loyalty so you know you, you no longer you see fewer and fewer papers with the names of the party in the paper the Springfield Democrat or the Springfield Republican for example and um and then in the 20th century report you get the the rise of the professional reporter and the development of, of codes of objectivity and you have these these newspapers that are giving objective fact-based news to the masses and there's almost nothing about McCormick's Tribune that fits that. I mean, this it, it was an outrageously and overtly 
conservative outlet for the entire time that he ran it until he died in 1955. Um, but what's really important about it is not just that it that it had those politics, but that it it was a it, he used the, the Tribune to then found the New York Daily News, which was one of the first uh, tabloid newspapers in the United States. His cousin Joe Patterson went and ran that, and they started that in 1919. And by the 1930s, they had the two. These were the two highest circulating newspapers in the United States. And the Daily News is was it was a picture based tabloid that trafficked in sensationalism and these these really jarring images. Um, and so I, I sort of find McCormick and that company really fascinating because these are the what he what he created were not marginal newspapers. He had the high his company had the highest circulating newspaper in the U.S. in the New York Daily News, and then the Tribune was the highest circulating broadsheet newspaper. In the United States, and yet you really you almost never see sustained consideration of this in journalism history. There's a, there's a lot of times I think that that what what a lot of us have done in in writing journalism history is focus on the the people and the news organizations that we admire, and focus less attention on the news organizations that a lot of Americans relied upon to give them the news. And a lot of the, and so I find the, the Tribune Company really fascinating uh, on those grounds. Um, but McCormick created this this hugely successful newspaper. He developed uh, one of the one of the first really major multimedia conglomerates in the United States. He did things that I think William Randolph Hearst is often talked about as like the only person who did this. But when you look at the media empire that McCormick created in the Midwest, he he bought in to radio very early. He the Tribune was called the world's greatest newspaper. He was not a very modest man. <laughs> um, and the call letters of the, of the broadcasting station that he started were WGN, which was the acronym for world's greatest newspaper. So he got into radio. He started doing, uh, making newsreels. He later got in WGN television, was later one of the first television, television stations in the city, along with the Turner broadcasting system. It was later, this is long after McCormick's death, one of the for satellite stations. And, and he had this vision of, of the Tribune as not just being a paper that was going to serve the city of Chicago, but that was going to serve this region that, that he coined a term for, the Chicagoland region. And he was going to develop this infrastructure that was going to allow him to gather news and send printed newspapers out to communities all across Illinois, uh, Iowa, Michigan, Indiana. So there were, you know, it was it was this idea of creating a, a really this this regional colossus out of a newspaper, um, and so he ultimately he created this this extraordinarily successful newspaper that was you know, that had that was that was trafficking in you know a, a very reactionary brand of politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that's a perf- that's a great summation of um, who he was and um, what his newspaper was trying to do. Um, but it's even more interesting when you start considering these like international connections. So, you know, in spite yes. of his, um, you know, his like America firstism, his hypernationalism, um, he also pursued this like really innovative international solution um, to the paper supply problem. Um, you know, he, when he essentially bypassed the middleman selling newsprint and, and um, you know, his, his company bought Canadian Timberlands, built their own mills and then manufactured their own paper. Um, can you yeah. share this story? Yeah, that, that was the, the sort of the, the, the really eye-opening stuff for me. I, I, and I, I was just so fortunate to stumble upon this trove of documents that allowed me to do that. There was, when I started just doing searches for archives, I knew the Tribune archives in Chicago and I started going, going into archival search engines and, and just putting terms in. And I, it, it, 
I found this collection that had been processed but not made public at, at Library and Archives Canada in Ottawa. And I, I got in touch with with an archivist named Stephen Salmon, who was just this extraordinary guy who was you know man and an archivist who just was I, I couldn't have done this without the work that he did and he basically had gotten the the corporate archive of the Tribune's uh Canadian subsidiary and and just it was 500 and some odd boxes of material and and tens of thousands of photographs and and technical drawings and and the collection wasn't open to researchers when I started working with it and I to the, the last time I checked a couple of years ago I don't think it had it I think it's still Closed, but it's this amazing collection. Um, but one of the what I discuss, what it details in there is how the Tribune Company built this multinational, vertically integrated supply chain that allowed it to control everything about the production of a newspaper, starting with the trees in Canada that were growing in forests. It it had um, just these massive forest concessions. I mean, you know, like like the size of like the American state of Connecticut. You know, these really, I mean, by Canadian standards, those aren't huge, I guess. But you know, by American standards, you know, having a some, having a forest concession the size of of an entire state is something. And you know, they built a fleet of boats, and they would, you know, they built two newsprint mills. Uh, they built one in Thorold, Ontario, and then they built one. Uh, they built the they built a newsprint mill in the entire town of Baycomo. Uh, Quebec uh, in the 1930s, but you know you had this guy who was who was uh, you know this proudly nationalist American who made no who was also at the same time very proud of the fact that he had created this company that was operating across the U.S. Canada border as a multinational manufacturing firm, and I think in doing this. He he looked at himself in a lot of ways. McCormick did as as a peer and as a rival of Henry Ford, and he and uh, an industrialist like Ford. I mean, he wanted to be considered somebody that that Americans would talk about in that breath. And so he looked at this. Uh, he looked at the at, at publishing a newspaper and and making an industrial newspaper chain supply chain. Um, he looked at that as a way of demonstrating you know his capabilities uh, at doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would I would love for you to talk a little bit more about his critique of the New Deal, yeah. you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and especially the town of Norris, Tennessee, which was, um, you know, uh, more or less a company town for um, uh, people that were working one of the dams um, uh, in the, the, the TVA, um, and that sort of with his own company town in Quebec. Yeah, yeah, that that was probably the most that was really the most fascinating part of this in a lot of ways is that he, you know, he, he you know, he was, he was, he was rapidly anti-New Deal. I mean, it just like, like pathologic, almost pathological. He hated Roosevelt, he hated the New Deal, and he hated everything they were doing. And on, at, at, you know, on a daily basis would, would in, in the news columns of his paper and in the editorials, just attack everything that the, that the New Deal was doing as being some sort of, you know, every, everything was some sort of Leninist or Stalinist, project and and he really really hated the Tennessee Valley Authority which was this effort by the new deal to uh build to do major hydroelectric developments along the Tennessee River and provide among other things electrification for a region that didn't have it so this was going to promote industrial development and it was also going to promote the electrification uh of homes in rural areas where there were still people who were living these lives that were that were basically not that different from the 19th, that were the ones that their grandparents had lived. And he, McCormick just thought that this was some sort of Leninist project. And he, he hated the, the fact that, that the federal government was doing these massive public hydroelectric projects. 
Um, and he really hated that they had built this this town, Norris, Tennessee, which was this kind of model company town that these new dealers had built to house the workers who were building the dam. And a lot, and they they looked at this. This is Arthur Morgan and Earl Draper. Um, they looked at this as this idea that they could make portable and they could do in other parts of the country. That is, you know, you could you could use good planning principles and to build these towns that fit in next to industrial developments that were going to be financed by the federal government, and you could use the built environment to give people good and enriching lives. And, and, you know, the Tennessee, you know, a lot, there were a lot of Americans who, who looked at the ordinary and academics who looked at the Tennessee Valley authority and thought that this was going to be this great model that could be used in other parts of the country. And McCormick just thought that, that it was just absolutely outrageous. And this was the one of the most, one of the most obvious signs to him in the mid thirties that, that we were headed towards um, something that was going to look like Soviet Russia. Uh, and, and it, the, the, one of the most ironic or you know maybe even hypocritical things is that at the same time that he's making all these statements in his newspaper about the Tennessee Valley Authority, he's doing almost exactly the same thing on the other side of an international border in Quebec, um, which is to say he's, he, he gets a, a large land concession that's given to him by the state, by, um, by the Quebec government, and the land concession allows him to cut down trees and it allows him to develop uh, hydroelectric power on the rivers up there. There's at the at the time that where where the the town where Baycomo is now. If you look at it on a map now, um, there's very there's there's not a ton up there right now. Even I mean it's it's 450 some miles northeast of Montreal. Um, at the at the time that McCormick went up there in the mid 1930s, there was there was really next to nothing up there in terms of industrial development. Um, there was an indigenous population, but there was very little industrial development up there. So he gets this concession from the Quebec government. And then he also has in his pocket the fact that American tariff policy has made it such that he can build a branch plant up in Canada and get the newsprint to his Chicago and New York printing factory, printing plants without paying a penny of duties to anybody. And so he's got state policy in two countries that benefit him. And he just he decides that what he's going to do is he, he not just build a mill and let private development happen around it, but he's going to build a company. He's going to build this model town. He's going to show the world that he can do exactly what the New Deal was doing with the TVA in Tennessee, but that he but that this was something he could do as 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 a mem- as somebody in the private sector. And you can see it's basically it's in a lot of ways a sort of high like a kind of corporate variant of high modernist social planning. Um, it's just it's done by the private sector. He, it's I, I learned a lot from Greg Grandin's book about about Henry Ford's escapades in Brazil and, and McCormick. I think I think McCormick looked at Fordlandia as as a kind of model, and I think McCormick relished the fact that he was successful. I mean, you know, Fordlandia is this sort of spectacular failure, as Grandin narrates it. Um, and and Baycomo was for the Tribune Company this huge success, and it, it's. It's still there. There's still a newsprint mill there. There's all. There's other industry there. It's. It's still a, a quaint little town uh, along the river, and it's. It's very beautiful, uh, especially in the springtime. And um, but this was all. He he did all of this development in Canada while promoting America first ideas in the United States and railing against the sorts of federal developments like the TVA was doing. And he he was doing all of this with the with the support of of two nations. Uh, policies mm-hmm. in Canada. Yeah. I mean, what I really um, liked about um, this section was that you would, you were also sh- using sort of like Chicago Tribune articles about Baie Como, 
Yeah. Um, you know, see, like the Tribune was um, was like really advertising this, yeah, this like variant of modernization um, uh, that was basically run by the private sector with the um, uh, the, the not talked about help of the of, of, of both governments. Um, you know, you you have um, this anecdote about um, you know the first wedding in Bay Como in 1937. Yeah. Um, yeah, you you see this, you know, like metropolitan newspaper in Chicago that was um, doing stories about its own company town. Yeah, yeah, they would. I, I think he, I, I think the two aims there were. I mean, he wanted to show the paper wanted to show, um, they wanted to demonstrate the the reach and scope and potency of the corporation. You know, to show that you know this, even though the paper was was in Chicago, this this midwestern city um, that was you know, always feeling, you know, like second to New York, that there was, it had this command of, of resources and space that stretched all the way up, you know, well north into Canada. And they would run these articles periodically about um, the first uh, ships of the first ships in the spring that would be, that would deliver newsprint to Chicago after the the Great Lakes became navigable again, after they thought. And so they, there was this desire to kind of show that the company was this very powerful industrial enterprise. He didn't want to hide the fact that this com- that his company was an industrial enterprise. He wanted people to recognize that. Um, and I think in the art, in, in, in a lot of ways, he also wanted to use these articles about the people of Baycomo and and to show that that he, he he wanted to demonstrate that he was good at being paternalist. Um, he had this vision, I think, that was, you know, he, he was living in Chicago when when the town of Pullman failed spectacularly. And, he, you know, he had this, he, I think he did share a lot of George Pullman's vision about, about you know, you know, not only building a town as he did in Baycomo, but also being somebody who was, was kind of a, a shepherd for Chicago. I mean, he was an unabashed elitist who thought that people should listen to him and just follow his orders and, and believe what he suggested that they believe. And so by printing these articles about his his workforce in Canada, I think he was able to kind of demonstrate that that he was he was very good at taking care of people, that he was really good at being paternalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um just moving on to the 1940s. Um this is a really interesting moment. Um so uh you know, again you have these sort of necessities of like the everyday operation of the business. Um, sort of in conflict with the uh, ideological um, arguments of Robert McCormick, um, you know, and so for instance, um, uh, McCormick was extremely critical of Great Britain, um, and then once the Second World War started, and um, you know, Britain and Canada, you know, entered the war, um, he was, you know, while still using paper from Canada, using trees, you know, chopping down trees and turning them into newsprint, and then shipping them down to um, uh, the United States, um, he was like very basically a- attacking the war effort of Canada, um, and so this this is a <laughs> this this is yeah just like another um, like weird irony of of, of all of this. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about this about the like how the the Second World War played out for the Chicago Tribune? Yeah, he um he it got they got in a lot of hot water over this. There was I mean the, the Canadians were were rightly outraged about this that that you had you know you they had gone into the war, you know, they were they were in World War II for more than 2 years before the United States was. And McCormick's paper was uh it was a, it was a it was an America First isolationist newspaper. I mean, he had 
he had no interest whatsoever in he, he was actively opposed to the idea of the United States entering the war. And again, this is he was a very selective internationalist. He was perfectly happy to you know, talk about how, how, you know, good of a steward he was for the people who lived in his Canadian company town. But when it came to the idea of, of, you know, people in Canada going to, you know, the people in the United States going to war alongside people in Canada against fascism, well, I mean, that was a line he wasn't willing to cross. And so he, he kept printing this newspaper that was, that was incredibly isolation. It's very anti-British, uh, in many respects, pro-German. And, this got him on the radar of a lot of Canadians who were rightly outraged and, and who, were fu- who were fully aware of what was going on here. The, the Tribune was operating, you know, what was what was a major industrial enterprise in Canada, and there this this reaches uh, this reaches the Canadian Parliament where you have people standing up and saying, you know, how on earth is it that we can allow this American publisher the privilege to to cut down our trees and make newspaper make newsprint and take it down and then print articles against the war effort that Canadians are, are currently engaged in. And so there were, there were these efforts, there, there, was a, there were these discussions about what to do with it. I mean, was, should the Tribune be, be banned? Should their enterprises be shut down? Um, they ultimately didn't, they were ulti- that ultimately didn't happen to them. It, 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 the, the controversy didn't ultimately manifest in any significant actions against the Tribune. The most that they, that they suffered was there were, there were, um, power regulations that went into place in Ontario uh, in order to allow plants that were making munitions and, and things that were necessary for the war effort uh, more power um, to, to do that. And so uh, his paper mill in Ontario was forced to, to run at, at a lower power output than it had been previously. And so the output went down for a couple of years. And and there were these articles, there, there, were, there were a few articles that the Tribune published suggesting that this was somehow some sort of, you know, you know, some sort of hit job on the part of Canadian policymakers that were trying to get back at the, the Tribune for the articles uh, that he was publishing. Um, but the, the 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 operation ultimately survived. He didn't suffer any significant um, financial damage as a result of it. Um, but it did bring his his enterprise to the attention of a lot of Canadians who who maybe weren't quite aware of of the scope of the operation. Um, it, it 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 was I, th- I think a pretty widespread phenomenon in, in Eastern Canada at that time in Ontario, especially in Ontario, uh, where pro-British sentiments ran stronger than they did in Quebec. Um, it was it was pretty widely known w- what he was doing and what the politics of his newsprint manufacturing were. Um, and, you know, his reputation was, was, his reputation took a hit in Ontario as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the 1940s are also interesting because this is the moment that the Tribune Company um, really diversifies, uh, and um, you have a um, just some lovely evidence from this um, luncheon in New York in the um, you know immediate post-war years. Um, I think like 1947, um, in which the company was sh- you know showing off some of its new products. Um, and so, can you yeah. share with listeners what some of those products were, and um, maybe explain? what the factors were, what some of the factors were that pushed a newspaper company towards producing things that had nothing to do with the news. Sure. Yeah. So they, the, there was a lot of waste in, in the, the newsprint manufacturing business. You, it it required a lot of water inputs. So you, you put a lot of clean water in and a lot of dirty water came out. There were a lot of chemicals involved in the manufacturing uh, of the pulp and then the manufacturing of the paper. Um, and during the war, 
the the Tribune company started, you know, all, all, materials for all sorts of industrial production were running in short supply, and the the company began employing a staff of chemists. Uh, they put they put a staff of chemists to work to try and figure out ways of making the the production process more efficient. So figuring out ways of of recycling and repurposing certain aspects of the industrial production. And one of these things they figured out that there was they could use some of the waste sulfite liquor as a way of of contributing to the manufacture of synthetic rubber. And so at one point they they made these they made these tires. Uh, car tires out of a compound that they were calling Tribuna, and they put them on a car and they sent it on this well-publicized journey uh, drive from Chicago to Los Angeles. And this, uh, the idea was that that you know it, the Tribune was going to help contribute to these American rubber shortages that had been developed because Southeast Asian supplies had been cut off during the war. But then they also started fiddling around with some of these other chemicals that were, and some of these byproducts that had been uh, developing during. Uh, during the newsprint manufacturing process, and and they they made a, a few pretty interesting advances there, and and the one that I, I I so you know they they figured out ways that you could make paper plates, for example, out of some of the bark that had been you know that you, you when you when you debark the the logs that you were going to um, use to manufacture the paper, you were left with with cellulose material that wasn't fit to make newsprint, but you could make other forms of paper, and one of them so they made uh, for this luncheon they made these paper plates out of used paper stock uh, to do that. But then they also figured out that you could make uh, a chemical called vanillin, which which they derived from lignin, which was a chemical agent that was, it was a hydrocarbon that was a part of the tree that wasn't useful for the manufacture of paper. And chemists had been, had been, and chemical engineers have been kind of puzzling around and experimenting with lignin for a while uh, in the 20th century. And um, the Tribune w- was operating at, at, a, at a scale that they had a lot of it on their hands. And what they figured out was if you ran this lignin through a series of what seemed to be pretty flammable and toxic chemical processes, you would ultimately end up with a powder that you could use as synthetic vanilla flavoring. And they became uh, they they developed a side business in the manufacture uh, of of synthetic vanilla flavoring, and were selling that to food producers uh, around the world uh, for decades after World War II. But it it was it was this fascinating story about how you you have these products that were you know part of the newsprint manufacturing chain that ultimately had had nothing to do with the newspaper, you know, but you know. Using all using these chemical byproducts, you could make rubber. You could make synthetic vanilla flavoring. Um, you could also there there was some there was experiments done. They 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 sold another another less refined version of vanillin to the Merck Corporation that began using it to make hypertension mm. drugs. Uh, so it was just it was it was part of this movement uh, in the middle in the 30s and the 40s uh, of people who were trying to figure out all of these things that could be done. Um, with the byproducts of, of agricultural production, these people were they, there was a movement called Kemergy that had a kind of short li- lifespan uh, in, at that time that were of people trying to do this. Um, but that was this I, it was this sort of fascinating element of like you know this the, this newspaper company becoming a manufacturer of 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 sort of, of synthetic vanilla flavor. Yeah, it's, it's so strange. It's so strange. But it's also like these are the consequences of you know, newsprint being like a, an industrially manufactured product, you know, you yeah, know, all yeah. These other, yeah, like chemical agents that can get turned into alcohol or um, yeah. flavoring. It's, it's super yeah. fascinating. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's, it's a really interesting story to me of just, I, and also, I mean, I think it speaks to the degree to which 
McCormick was somebody who looked at this newspaper enterprise as an industrial enterprise. And, and the idea was like, what, how do you, how do you squeeze every bit of efficiency out of the production process? And how do you take things that, that have excess capacity and do something else with it? Like, I mean, I, I, I see, um, you know, you see a lot of industrial corporations doing this. I mean, you know, the meatpacking industry was one that newsprint manufacturers often looked at as like the model of an industry that that wasted nothing. Like everything, like if that cow went in one end of the slaughterhouse, there was like everything got used somehow. And newsprint manufacturers like McCormick like really looked at that as a model. Like we want to make sure that that when that tree comes down, we extract every possible cent of value that we can out of that tree. Um, regardless of, of, you know, and, and it, that ultimately ends up generating some products, some, some revenue streams that don't seem to have obvious connections to the primary one of, of printing the, of printing news and advertising for American mm-hmm. readers. Yeah. And maybe just moving on to, um, uh, I guess closer to the end of the book, um, the yeah. problem of newsprint shortages just continues. Um, and especially after the second world war, it's a global problem. Um, and you kind of track different attempts to deal with this issue. And so um, uh, maybe instead of just giving us an overview, can you talk about one in particular that surprised me because I had never heard of it, um, facsimile broadcasting? Oh, yeah. Yeah, These are this is this kind of wild moment. So this happened uh, in the 19 – there were experiments with facsimile back to the – the 20s, I think. I think. I mean, I, I, I recall reading articles going back that far. But the idea was that you would you would use you would use the rate you would use the airwaves to rather than sending out sound, you would send out information that would be decoded on in the home by a device that would then produce that information on a piece of paper, just like a fax machine. I mean, it's the same technology that would later be used by fax machines that would use telephone wires. Um, but they would be successful as 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 point to point communications devices. But there was this thought that in the in the the 30s and the 40s that you could use facsimile as a mass medium. And so what you it would and and the idea the 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 main motivating factor for publishers was that it it what it what it meant you could do is you could sell somebody a newspaper, but then you might not have to bear the cost of of having this massive industrial plant and all this newsprint. You could essentially offload the cost of printing onto the user who would have to maintain the set in the home and then buy the paper. Um, and so McCormick and he was he was one of a number of 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 people in the broadcasting and publishing industries who did a lot of experiments with facsimile broadcasting and they would, they, you know, the, the technology never, it was just, it was a little bit too far ahead of its time in terms of it, of the ability of people to manufacture sets that worked well at the cost you could get them for. They ended up being these extraordinarily expensive sets that delivered these really what were just kind of cruddy printed newspapers, like for what you would pay to have a fax set, a facsimile set in your house and what you would pay for the paper compared to the fact that you could go out and buy this massive piece of newsprint just down the block or have this massive piece of newsprint just show up on your, on your doorstep, you know, for pennies a day, it just never really took off. And, and most people found that for the kinds of news that they were getting over the fax, they were perfectly happy just getting that over the radio. But it was this really interesting moment where you see publishers begin to to kind of push up against uh, the limits of of industrial paper and begin to try to find ways of of perhaps freeing themselves from having to maintain these printing plants. And so, with the facsimile 
technology. They thought they would they would do it over the airwaves, just like with broadcasting, and you would and that would get spit out. And and these these episodes continued into the 1970s and the 1980s with uh, television based newsprint delivery systems. The Dow Jones Company tried this. Knight Ritter tried this, and again, they never quite they they just the the technologies. They always seemed clunky and kind of awkward to people and never really seemed to offer a kind of satisfying substitute for the newspaper. And so and they could never be done at cost and at scale. And so they 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 failed. But it does it does show, I think, that there were these people like McCormick and 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 dozens of other people who were trying and corporations getting involved in facsimile broadcasting who started trying to extend ways of delivering news that went beyond the printed page. Um and what they found, what, I mean, this essentially was what was realized with uh, the internet in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the problem of paper um, becomes like a different kind of problem um, as we get to, you know, like a more like digitized um, age of information. Um, can you talk a little bit about, yeah, just like how that problem changes? Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of where the, where I where I ended the book. And it was, you know, the, for, for a newspaper publisher in before... The latter part of the late for until for a newspaper publisher until really recently, like we're talking like the last like twenty five years, the one of the biggest problems that the enterprise faced was getting adequate supplies of paper at a cost that that allowed them to continue to do business profitably. And there were there were there were rarely moments of of scarcities in the United States where the existence of newspapers was threatened. This was the case in in post World War II Europe, and there were instances where. You know, there were these like the, these attempts to get foreign newsprint to war-torn publishers who could then begin printing again. But American publishers, the, the big problem they faced there was that, that the cost of newsprint would fluctuate wildly. And in many cases, many, many newspapers ultimately would go out of business because um, the costs of, of printing simply were too great for them. So the problem of paper for a publisher was that you always had to have it on hand at a price that allowed you to continue to do business. And like a lot of things in the newspaper business, there was the this favored pe- people who could operate at scale, uh, at people who were buying. The more newsprint you bought, the cheaper the price it was that you paid for it. And this went back to the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. And this is this is one of the things that motivated McCormick to to try and vertically integrate himself. Is that he he thought that if 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 he vertically integrated the newsprint manufacturing, he would free himself up from having to buy paper at market prices that would fluctuate. And so he controlled the problem that way. But what began to happen in the late in, in the, the really late 20th century and recently is that the, the problem of paper became for publishers that increasing numbers of consumers simply didn't want to buy paper. They got a lot more comfortable getting news uh, on the radio, on television, and especially uh, getting news on the screen, on the internet, um, because that was the thing that really finally broke the the newspaper's monopoly on printed knowledge. I mean, the the, the radio and, and television added a lot to the informational environment that people lived in, but these were different media and they had different conventions and they had different appeals. Um, and there was a different way that one in, interacted with it. You couldn't, you can't, for example, skim through radio stories. And there's a lot of people who much preferred to read a newspaper, even in the broadcast era, because of the, the temporal control that it offered them and the selectivity that it offered them. But once you get to the, to text on a screen with the internet, um, and by the way, in the in the in the early period, it's all free. I mean, this was this huge error that that newspaper publishers made by just kind of throwing it all up there for free in the beginning. 
um, is that that seemed for a lot of people to be, especially younger people, to be an adequate substitute. And they no longer seem to think that, that getting this, this collection of, of paper every day was something that they needed to do. And this is the thing that really ultimately has, has transformed the newspaper business. It's, it's not, I, I think, I try to propose in the book this idea that what, that what people sometimes look at this as a crisis of journalism. And, and a crisis of public intelligence. And, you know, th- there are days where it, it's hard to not see a crisis of public intelligence and, and it's hard not to see, you know, a crisis for journalists. Um, but the, the thing that really hit newspapers hard was it's a business problem. And the, 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 the business of printing a newspaper in the industrial era was based on the idea that you sold people a lot of paper at a very, very low price. I mean, newsprint, it's cheap paper. I mean, it's, it's, it's pulp. I mean, it's, you know, pulp fiction. It's printed on, it's printed on the cheapest paper that they could make that would withstand the rigors of industrial printing. And what they would put on that paper is a lot of advertising. I mean, one, that's one of the things you realize when you read a newspaper cover to cover, or you skim through a whole newspaper on ProQuest or on microfilm is you realize that, that more than half of most successful newspapers was at, it wasn't news, it was ads. And so the 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 more the more the higher your circulation, the more you could charge for ads, and you could essentially not really worry that much about revenue from circulation because you're you're really making the, a lot of these publishers were making the lion's share of their revenues from advertising, and as people buy newspapers in, as people as fewer people buy newspapers, the advertisers look at them as somewhat less attractive ad buys. And it, you be, you begin to get this kind of vicious cycle downward, and you and this is what has sort of led us to this situation where you pick up a printed newspaper now, and it, it, they often seem just so thin and flimsy. And there's something, you know, especially about local newspapers, there's something really kind of sad and tragic about some of them. They, they you know, that if you if you're old enough to remember, you know, having a newspaper that had some heft to it, you pick up a daily edition of a newspaper in a mid-sized North American city, and it's you know, it's you know, it it, it just it feels slight and you, you read it and it, it seems like a lot of what you're reading in it is is stuff that you already heard about the night before or the day before online um, or, you know, on the radio or, or, or saw on television. So um, it that's sort of the problem of paper in the 21st century is that that fewer people want to buy printed newspapers and fewer adver- advertisers are putting ads in it and, and newspapers – have really struggled to figure out a way to generate revenue other than that advertising subsidy that had sustained them for the 20th century. I think, you know, the New York Times will often report uh, quarterly how they're doing on revenue and, you know, their, their digital revenues are now, I think, greater than the print revenues. Um, you know, they rely on people who are paying for digital subscriptions. Um but they're an outlier, and they're they're a paper that 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 draws on a readership that I, I think, by and large, treats it like they treat public radio, which is to say, it's a public good that you're willing to support with a few bucks every month. Um, but a lot of local newspapers are are not really getting this kind of support from local readers, and it, it, it's just hemorrhaging. I mean, the the, the I mean, there's this there, you know, there's just this huge gap at the local level. Um, that as as these newspapers have have declined and died, you find news, you find you know mid sized communities all across North America that don't have a daily newspaper anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's um, a, a, a useful, although sad, um, a place to to leave leave our discussion yeah. of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's the it's incredibly sad. Yeah, it, it, it's it's yeah. just it's it's just really hard to. Um, 
like think about all the all the stories that don't get reported, and you know um, all the, the the local journalists who um, who no longer have jobs. It's, it's really sad. Um, yeah, it is just it's a fascinating way that the, there's a kind of way that this is still a material history. I mean, the you know it used to be that the the newspaper was the one was the entity that captured the revenue for generating the news, but what you get now is a situation where the device manufacturer is the one who's capturing the re- the revenue from people reading the news. So you know, Apple is selling a lot of, and Samsung they're selling a lot of devices that people are using to access you know, quote unquote, newspapers. And so there's still a lot of money floating around in the media business. Like you can still make a lot of money in that business, but newspapers just lost the ability to capture the revenue streams that they had captured so successfully Mm -hmm. in the 20th century. I think that's a a good place to to leave the book. I would love to hear about what you're working on right now. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a book that, that extends some of these, uh, these themes about thinking about the connections between, media and nature. And there's a bit in that about papermaking and um, and chemistry uh, in thinking about like in the early 20th century, how that some of these same advances that generated uh, massive increases in crop yields uh, for, for farmers was also helping to develop the technologies, develop the, the ways uh, of making paper, both out of wood pulp and then out of all sorts of other materials that at the time were considered uh, candidates for repatriating American manufacturing. There was a, a fascinating episode in the in the teens and 20s as the industry was shifting north where there were a number of these entrepreneurs um, and there were people in the in the US, the United States Department of Agriculture who supported this, who thought that we might be able to make paper in this country uh, out of corn. And so there were all these experiments going and they, they, never, they ultimately never took off. Um, but those experiments did bear fruit after World War II in the American South, where people, uh, entrepreneurs and inventors were able to find ways of, of using Southern pine to manufacture newsprint uh, and to sort of um, exploit American forests in the interest of producing American newspapers um, in the U.S. South. And so there's some material in this new book about uh, the ways in which people manipulated, uh, looked at the landscape and looked, and looked at nature and saw things that they could Used to to communicate. Um, there's also a, a history of of broadcasting in there, and thinking about how when people were kind of developing conceptions of what radio was and how to regulate it, a lot of times what they were what they were drawing from were conceptions that they had of landed property. Um, you know, like you know whether you would uh, whether you would sell a parcel of land to a private developer or whether you would lease that parcel of land to someone and allow them to develop it under license. And that was essentially the, what what the Americans did with broadcasting, but a lot of the ways that people thought about it were, um, were drawn from nature. And that one of the founding principles of American broadcast regulation is this idea that broadcasters, when ostensibly, it's rarely actually enforced, but when they go to the, the federal licensing body and ask for their, their, their license to be renewed for another term, they have to demonstrate that they've operated in the public interest, convenience, and necessity, which was a, a standard that was, that was extracted verbatim from public utility regulation uh, in the decades before. Um, and so I'm trying to kind of think about it. There's, there's a way of kind of thinking about going back and kind of trying to reconstruct how policymakers looked at broadcasting as a public utility 
and you know looking at how and and then thinking about what that might mean you know public utilities are, are in in many cases are given franchises to exploit nature to to exploit rivers to develop hydroelectricity to sell to municipalities and to corporations provided that they operate in the public interest um and so i think we can think about the 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 development of broadcasting policy in this country as having this kind of forgotten history that relates to the development uh, of American of, of utilities. Um, and then finally, there's a bunch of stuff that I've been exploring uh, that I, I didn't do enough of in, in Dead Tree Media that looks at uh, the polluting effects uh, of paper manufacturing and of, of newspaper publishing. I mean, anyone who's ever been near a paper mill town knows it because they've smelled it. I mean, it, it generates it's a it generates an awful sort of rotten egg smell. The 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 it generates a lot of of wastewater which is full of toxic chemicals and it can generate a lot of solid waste which is not good for the surrounding environment. Um, so I've been looking at a, a number of ways that people have attempted to create and develop more. I mean, in in contemporary terms, greener ways uh, of manufacturing media and thinking about how to how to you know recycle both. Um, paper and you know more recently these digital devices i mean there's the the problem of e-waste has become you know really um i mean it's become a huge problem uh in many municipalities so um the the book it's tentatively titled communicating with nature but the the basic idea is that it looks at how people in the industrial era looked at nature as something that they could manipulate in the interest of generating communications media great i really look forward to to reading that whenever it comes out Thanks. Um, Michael, I want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you very much for having me, Dexter. I really enjoyed talking to you. Great. And I've been speaking with Michael Stamm, the author of Dead Tree Media, Manufacturing the Newspaper in 20th Century North America. And you've been listening to New Books in History.